privilege today for Turf Business TV. We're joined by Eden Park Turf Manager Blair Christensen down there in New Zealand. Uh, and from a hotel in Wales, we're joined by Jason Booth, who heads up the OG Turf Care Programme and is also a member of their board. Guys, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. For a Kiwi, um, there can't be too much better than uh, being the guy that looked after the venue for a Rugby World Cup, a Cricket World Cup, and now you've got the Lions coming. I mean, are you doing anything different to prepare for that challenge? Yeah, really looking forward to it. Um, and in terms of what we're doing differently, we've probably done it um, early. You know, so in terms of we've intensified some of our uh, renovation programs in sort of advance of this upcoming winter, you know, knowing it's a pretty um, public uh, sort of place for us for a couple of months. You know, we've got uh, two test matches against the Lions. We've got Super Rugby team playing the Lions. We've got a, actually a warm-up um, double-header test match with Wales playing Tonga and the All Blacks playing Samoa as well, mixed in amongst that, just so the All Blacks have a bit of a, a run before we, we hit the Lions. Um, so a lot of the things that we did differently, we've done three, four, five months ago. And so in terms of what we're doing pitch-wise now, it's sort of a traditional prep for, say, an international match. But, you know, some of that different stuff is just intensifying the frequency of our renovation programs um, during the sort of spring and early autumn. Just interested in, obviously, uh, playing rugby union, uh, the construction of what you've got at uh, the pitch at Eden Park, and also, just to touch on as well, the different type of construction that you have for the dropping pitches as well. Soils, grass types, uh, cultivars, yep. interesting for, again, the guys in the UK. Yeah, so our profile is a, a MOTS um, reinforced profile. It's, it encompasses um, synthetic fibres within it, um, all below the surface, so rather than above the surface. So a little bit different to the Deso Grassmaster, but it still provides the same sort of... A, added stability, I guess. Um, we put that in in 2003 when we constructed the profile. It's a USGA uh, spec full 300mm sand profile with a 75mm gravel raft sitting on a um, geotextile uh, cloth to sort of encapsulate the whole profile. So any water that goes in then uh, moves through the profile and out through the drainage system rather than relying on sort of um, preferential flow or anything like that through different sort of um, sub-grade uh, conditions. It's um, perennial ryegrass, um, three different cultivars, so that at any point in time of the year we've sort of got something act actively growing. Some of them are winter active and some of them are um, more summer active and disease tolerant and drought tolerant. Um, and our Portable pitches are a full clay profile for for um, that use, and they're about 72% clay, um, and they are 150 mils deep, sitting on a 50 mil um, scoria or a volcanic rock subgrade. Um, and when we don't have the cricket pitches in, we have what we call a sand tray, which is a blank tray, which is exactly the same profile as the rest of um, the field. So hopefully come the lions you won't even see the sand tray out there the heightened awareness of of the test matches coming up does that put you personally and your team under more scrutiny and under more pressure yeah uh, it it probably shouldn't but it does you know in terms of um you know we've we've done dozens and dozens of all black test matches before but you you're always sort of on edge and you know aware of you know things that you know just the lead in weather and um you know it's quite an intense period of traffic you know in the middle of our winter um so you know you're always on edge you never know exactly how the lead in's going to go and you know we're always adaptable to be able to change um sort of procedures immediately prior to them and that's that's quite a, a good thing to be a, a place to be in but you're always on edge you know you're, you're confident but you never 100% confident and, you know, you, you watch with a lot of um, anticipation. How did you get into the turf care industry and, and what attracted you? And uh, was that always something that interested you? Um, it didn't interest me to start with. I played a lot of golf um, through my sort of high school years and um, was intrigued about, you know, playing different golf courses and seeing different 
types of turf and the different qualities, you know, that were delivered by, um, you know, machinery and people and things like that. And so the more golf you played, the more courses you played and the sort of different sites you, you got to see and then just became interested in how they were achieved. Um, and I did a sort of work placement through one of my last years of school on a golf course. And then sort of once once I'd done that and sort of got an insight or on the other side of the, um, the golf clubs, then, you know, became really, really interested in it. It's interesting because I obviously came from a background of professional sport as well. So I was involved with on that end of, end of sport. And it's interesting that uh, I'm more intrigued about what, what gave you the bug? What, what There must have been one instance that gave you the bug of... For me, the the ability to just sort of um, you know know what's required or know what you you want from a, a surface you know in particular at that time it was golf and then sort of having an ability to uh, be part of delivering that and so you know you're always looking for smooth greens quick greens um, great lies on fairways and things like that and so I thought well if I can help deliver that. Um, then that would be a pretty cool lifestyle and uh, it would be a, uh, a career as well. Blair, I think you, you started out in terms of professional turf care in, in greenkeeping at a golf course. Yeah. Was Eden Park always on your kind of wish list? Probably not in the first couple of years. You know, it was, you know, you, you head down that sort of golf route and you, you dream of being a golf course superintendent at a um, sort of, prestigious golf course, I guess. But once I um, had completed my studies in the golf course arena, I, I was also interested in cricket and rugby and sort of played a lot of those as well and thought that cricket pitch was something that um, not many people did and was sort of unique. And so maybe thought uh, there could be a, an opening in this sort of uh, line of our sort of industry as well by still being able to utilize a lot of the skills that i'd learned and so i did additional training in my last year of a greenkeeping apprenticeship i did a um sports turf trade certificate as well so ended up with sort of two qualifications and then when i finished my greenkeeping apprenticeship i moved straight into cricket pitch um sort of preparations blair i think you've had two spells at eden park is that correct yeah, um, I started here on uh, January the 1st in uh, the year 2000, so sort of new millennium um, and change from where I was preparing cricket pitches to, to here. Um, big difference. Um, and I stayed here for three years doing um, cricket pitches here at Eden Park. And then I left in 2000, end of 2003 to, to work with the New Zealand Sports Turf Institute as a um, sports turf advisor, and I did that for four years. And then I returned as the assistant turf manager at Eden Park in 2006. And I've been here ever since, so coming up 11 years now. So you got promoted from within uh, to your current role. Was that always something that you were building towards or was that something that just kind of happened? No, no, that was always part of a, I kind of try and have a bit of a plan, you know, in terms of everything is done for a reason. And so, you know, the, the move from New Zealand Sports Turf Institute was strategic in terms of, you know, trying to, uh, rather than kind of be a little bit of an um, ambulance at the bottom of a cliff, I wanted to be able to, because I was seeing a lot of uh, stuff, but I was tending to be called upon, you know, for, for all the wrong reasons, and I wanted to be able to sort of create, you know, some of the, the better turf surfaces around. So, you know, it was a move to Eden Park to do that, and, you know, within... That sort of 11 years, ultimately, you know, I'd always wanted to, to take over the, the reins here at, at Eden Park. And I've been doing that for four years now. So that was that was good. So in, in terms of the turf care industry in New Zealand, how high profile is it? Is it something that's a well-respected profession? It is at the um, very public level. I mean, in terms of, so the stadium level, I mean, I think it is a really uh, well-received and respected role, but I, I probably don't think that some of the people that don't get the same um, publicity are as respected as they could and should be, um, because there's a lot of smart and, and um, dedicated people that are, are not seen at all. Um, 
you know, within club cricket grounds and football pitches and things like that. The only reason that those surfaces are what they are is because of the work that's gone into them, you know, throughout the weekend, unseen, um, but often un, sort of uh, noticed as well. I think we'd find that the same over here. Would you agree, Jason? Yeah, uh, recreational cricket is a massive thing in the UK. And participation rates have been falling over the past few years. But the EC England Wales Cricket Board have had initiatives for groundsmen and volunteer groundsmen running since the early 2000s. Is there anything similar in New Zealand or support from New Zealand Cricket Board for, for these guys, these volunteers that are working at their local clubs? And and, there, and do you get involved as professionals? Yeah, there is a lot of um, emphasis put by New Zealand Cricket on um, grassroots stuff and recognising that um, there's not only the elite level of cricket and, you know, the bulk of people that um, are associated and, and affiliated with cricket are not your black caps and they're not first-class cricketers, but they still have a, the same interest. It's just that they may not have the same skill level, so they should be um, sort of acknowledged and given, you know, the support to play on, you know, some pretty good surfaces. And, you know, everyone wants to play on grass rather than sort of synthetic surfaces. I mean, you get to play the game, but you don't get to feel the same uh, intricacies of pitch um, deterioration or, or pace bounce and um, variability and things like that, which are all great to talk about after the game, not when you're playing it and you've got one that's sort of uh, popped on you a bit or, or shot low, but afterwards you can still talk about those those dodgy ones that seemed in and when you left it and things like that. They're, they're great sort of attributes of the game. So New Zealand cricket is um, helping out with that. And, and even at Eden Park here, we, we have an advisory role with our major association, which is Auckland, and we help advise the, the ground staff that are preparing the premier club pitches that play on grass and the school pitches that play on grass in the sort of what they call the 1A competition, which is sort of your top high school stuff. So we'll help out ground staff to produce and prepare the best wickets. If they're in, running into trouble, we'll go out and help them as well. So we, we do do that. We're probably the only association in the country that does that, but it improves the surfaces that Auckland cricket get to use. And then those players come through, make rep teams, and then they're playing for the major association in three years' time. So it's all sort of, it helps. I, I manage uh, a, a programme or direct programme that's aimed at uh, grassroots cricket and actually uh, giving the facilities and skills for these volunteers, the, the real grassroots, to uh, improve their skills and improve uh, pitches and then ultimately improve uh, and increase participation. And we try to use the professionals as an aspirational uh, target, yes. these volunteers. So it's just interesting that you saying that you do the Premier League, which we have over here, the equivalent, and also the what we probably look at independent schools. But yes. actually, what we're trying to do, which we find we're still finding difficult, is actually to get to the next level, which is the real grassroots. And it looks like that you're in a similar position where, you, at the minute, there's only your association minute, whereas we're trying to get over 35, I think it's 39, uh, county grounds association counties and counties involved. So it's a, it's a big challenge for for us and for the English Wales Cricket Board going forward. It's interesting that you have a similar issue. Yeah, and I think New Zealand cricket would like that to be replicated in other areas of the country as well. Um, we're probably the most centralised with having a, a city essentially as a major association as opposed to others are a bit more provincial-like, but um, you know, there's certainly a model for people to try and replicate for sure. Blair, I want to move on and start talking about um, the team that you've got to support you there in your role. Um, firstly, how many people you got working at the stadium? So in terms of the turf area, there's six of us full-time staff. In the winter, um, we have a lot of our people taking annual leave because we, we pretty much don't take annual leave from, say, October through to the end of March with our summer season being cricket, but also it overlaps into a lot of other um, codes that we have here. We have a... We have like a, a nursery ground or an outer oval where we play first class cricket from October through until um, early April. And we also have the main stadium ground that has international cricket, super rugby, um, NRL, rugby league and A-league um, football and things like that through that summer period. So we get pretty busy through there and we take on extra um, casual staff in that time as well. But ordinarily six full time staff and up to seven 
um, in the summer, or at least seven in the summer. And, you know, Eden Park itself employs about 30 full-time staff, but um, a large number of casuals, you know, throughout event days and things. Blair, I believe in your first stint at Eden Park, uh, you're actually responsible purely for cricket pitches. Is, is that something you still do? You have people specialising? Um, we have a couple of people that are um, more skilled in, say, cricket pitch uh, preparation than others. And so we lead the, the team and uh, the others are a little task based, whereas we'll rely upon, you know, the um, preparation sort of methodology will be sort of devised by Adam and myself, my assistant, and, and I will develop that. And the other four uh, members will sort of, you know, implement a lot of it under our guidance. Um, and in the winter, it's a little bit the same. We sort of, um, the young guys, we have four younger guys and two more senior staff. And, you know, a lot of the plans and, and programs are developed by Adam and myself and implemented by um, the young guys under Adam's sort of guidance, I guess. So you've got a, a bunch of young guys and a mix of experience as well. How are you bringing that youth on and uh, developing them and honing their skills? Yeah, it, it, we're, it's really current question, actually, because, you know, we're trying to and encourage to um, move people through and develop people within our organisation. So there was a natural progression, I guess, from myself, from assistant turf manager to turf manager, and then Adam moved up the rain, uh, ranks within the organisation, and we try to promote that style of um, movement, and we would replace from the bottom, and it gives people a um, career path within our organisation, it gives them something to aspire to, rather than feeling like all of their hard work, they may not be naturally um, moved through the organisation. I mean, we also go through and make sure they are the best candidate, but we try and make sure that it's a, a pretty clear-cut choice as well. And so, therefore, a lot of the people that we get here new are trainees, essentially. That's been one of the biggest challenges in the UK, full stop, is that career pathway. Uh, something that the Institute of Groundsmanship that we're now starting to, starting to introduce is that clear career path where you can come straight from school uh, as a vol or even start as a volunteer and work your way right to the elite level, uh, yeah. which you, you guys yeah. are today. Uh, I, I'm probably going to steal in a question here, Martin, but uh, really interested off the back of what you were saying and talking about staff and, and numbers. There's, on, there's often a misconception in the UK at major stadiums that you have six internationals a year and then that's it. Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd just like you to expand on other usage or well, total usage within Eden Park, the main stadium, and obviously your outer grounds as well, but primarily Eden Park because I think it'd be interesting to see that you have the same issues or usage that our major stadiums like Wembley, Twickenham and the likes have over here as well. Yeah, yeah, Jason, for sure. We, we might have 25 event days out there on the number one field um, at Eden Park, but any one of those um, in between the time, you know, we're, we're preparing for things that might be in three months time and four months time. So in between that event, some of the um, practices that we're doing are not not for immediate um, effect, but they may well be to ensure that, you know, we were doing things uh, four, five, six months ago to ensure that, you know, during the middle of our winter when we had two Lions test matches, um, plus um, a Lions versus a Super Rugby franchise, you know, that the field's going to be in a the profiles in a condition so that it, it, it performs really well. So, you know, in between those games, there's a lot of work that goes on, not just for the upcoming event, but for, for things in the, the way future, you know, sort of thing. So even, you know, we're ensuring, you know, there's an England test match here in March um, next year, and we're ensuring that certain areas of the field that are under shade at that particular time will be in a, in a condition that will drain well, um, really good turf cover, all those types of things. And, you know, you need to do that sort of stuff now. And, of course, one of the biggest challenges for you guys is, is uh, especially New Zealand and Australia, is something that the major stadiums have yet to encounter in the UK. And that's, uh, we, we encounter multi-sports, but actually cricket and what we call winter sports as well. So if you could expand on how you manage that scenario and, yeah. and the challenges that, that that brings, that would be fantastic for the guys in the UK to listen to. 
Yep, so our stadium has a um, portable pitch technology, so that means the cricket pitch is in a, a steel tray that's lifted into the uh, stadium a uh, number of days prior to the event. And so depending on the schedule, I try and get the, the cricket trays in and have a clear run of at least 10 days. They have a nursery area where they may have been pre-prepared or uh, pre-rolled and things like that, but I'll, I'll try and get them in 10 days prior to the uh, cricket match. We have our cricket match uh, on the in the stadium, and then we may just have to remove the, the cricket pit straight away from that area and we'll have a winter code sport within one or two days on occasions. Could be Super Rugby, could be A-League, could be NRL Rugby League. And um, that period of the year is usually February, March, where we have a lot of different codes overlapping into each other. And then I'll have to bring another cricket tray back in and say 10 days' time and we'll have another international cricket match out there. So you've got an outfield that is sort of going from 12 mil cutting height to trying to get it up to sort of some sort of protection around 25 in really short space of time. You've got all different areas of the field being used for different purposes. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's tricky. Would the preparation differ from an in-situ pitch as to as, as, as a drop-in? What is, what's the difference in preparation? No, little difference. Um, we've created the uh, profile of our portable pitches to be an exact replicate of what we would have for an in-situ pitch. So therefore, their behaviour um, in our experience isn't different uh, apart from being mobile, essentially. So same clay type, same depth, same um, subgrade profile. And, and in terms of their preparations, we try and sort of replicate what we're doing in our um, outer oval, which all of the crickets that play on as well, and that gets um, really good reviews. So, um, no, it's a replication, and we're just trying to keep things very similar so we're not uh, not too many variables, I guess. So you say the timescale is you'd like to get it in 10 days prior to prior to yeah. use. If, if weather comes into that, what could be the maximum? What could that extend to? What could that decrease to? What we did for um, – we had a – our last test match here was England, uh, no, it was India, but the one before that was England. And um, we had the pitch in for four days prior to the test match. And the India test match was actually the same four days prior because of a winter code use. Um, it was A-League football. And we had done a lot of the preparation in the nursery area and then brought the pitch in to be finished off in the stadium. Um, there's always risk around that, you know, in terms of transporting a, a half-baked cricket pitch in but um on those two occasions we weren't affected by weather or anything like that but that's something to sort of bring in when you when we do our scheduling you know if we have any influence on that um with venue hires and things like that we try and get that clear window during cricket world cup we use different pitches for each of our matches and we had um, a match every saturday so we would prepare the wicket for six days in the nursery area play our match on the Saturday and then on the Sunday we'd bring in a new pitch that had been prepared for six days out of the ground and then once it's back into the uh, stadium then it would have another five days prep in the ground. And how much will these dropping pitches weigh in total in the steel trays? Each pitch weighs just over 20 tonnes, so they're in one piece, they're three metres wide by 25 uh, metres long and a transporter lifts them up in one one go. The, the machine weighs 20 tonnes as well, so you've got a, a cricket pitch that weighs 20 tonne, machine weighs 20 tonnes, so you've got 40 tonne on your field, so you have to have a plus an 8 tonne wheeled excavator to actually pull it out, so you have to have your outfield profile sound enough to, to take that sort of load, um, so therefore, you know, a lot of the work that we do is also to manage that profile condition to ensure that we don't, you know, you can imagine it's like driving a, a truck and trailer unit over your yeah. field and, you know, not every field can take that without, you know, and you've got a small ball sport with cricket that relies on ball roll and, and smoothness and consistency and things like that. So you have to be managing your profile, not just for um, uh, the codes that are playing, but also for our transporter moves. So that's that's what we do. What about the joins? What, is there any issues with the with the joins? 
Now the joins, the, the machine lifts the whole cricket pitch in in one go. So the, the trays are actually in four sections that are bolted together, but we prepare and construct the pitch as one. So you cannot see a single join. There's no seams, there's no cracks, there's no nothing. So some people can't even tell the portables. Um, only the people that have played quite a bit at, at Eden Park sort of know. So, but when you're having touring teams and a lot of the management will come up and say, is this a portable? And you go, yeah, it is. And they go, oh, I can't even tell. And some of them, um, you know, you say, oh, you played on this pitch uh, three years ago and these are the runs that were scored. Oh, yes, I remember this pitch. And so they're all sort of numbered and named and things like that, albeit that they're in exactly the same spot. So you could have... One year you're playing on pitch five, but it's in the same spot. And the next year, when the team comes back, they might be playing on pitch one, but it's in exactly the same spot. So it confuses people a little bit sometimes. With those drop-in pitches, are you getting pitches prepared for certain games and, and requests from captains or, or teams to say, can you get that pitch for us for that game? Yeah, when we, we do a, a pitch mapping process at the beginning of the year, and, um, and that's relative to our schedule, and we may put um, a certain pitch in for a certain match, knowing that, you know, say maybe New Zealand have never lost on that pitch or some of the characteristics that we we see in that pitch could suit who the uh, Black Caps are playing um, on that occasion. So, yeah, there's definitely certain pitches we use for certain occasions. Um, and they're only mildly different, um, but, you know, sometimes historical notes are, are well worth looking into. And, you know, they might be playing a, a final of a certain series against a certain team and they've never lost on that pitch. So, yeah, we'll definitely, you know, pop that one in for um, for good luck. You've been talking about the challenges there of, of preparing surfaces for quick turnaround for different types of sports. I assume you've got a lot of equipment to help you do that. What what are the key pieces of equipment to, to help you, you know, keep on top of that? We, I guess we've got quite a, yeah, quite a bit of equipment, but we try and do everything ourselves as well. So we don't, um, I, I don't really like to have a reliability on um, contracting organisations or anything like that, just because of the flexibility that we have to do tasks um, rather than relying on um, booking dates or weather or anything like that. So, you know, we have um, Verdi drains, we have Procore um, aerators, we have, you know, a mowing fleet, we have um, essentially everything that we need. The only thing I don't have, which I'd like, is a, a sort of a nice large-scale um, sand top dresser, which I'm sort of investigating at the moment just again so that we can have that flexibility of whenever we need and want to do it we can do it um, so I'm a little bit at the whim of a, a contracting uh, company with that but you know they are really flexible um, and so you know I haven't found the need yet but I, that's something that maybe in the future I'd look at. Just from my point of view it's really intriguing and how you put business proposals to the hierarchy uh, when you're wanting equipment and investment, and uh, if you just like to talk, uh, very relevant in the UK at the minute, and uh, just like if you could say a few words about how you, uh, what what your approach is like. Yep, it's um, it's not too much of a hard sell to uh, the management that we have here. They they're interested as we are in terms of turning out a quality um, product. That, you know, it represents our brand as well. You know, in terms of um, Eden Park, we want to be associated with you know really high quality stuff and if I can just um, explain to them how that piece of equipment will help us produce that then there's never too many arguments um, and you know a lot of the equipment lasts for a long long time it's not as if it's um, a really short-term investment and uh, all of these techniques that we are utilizing are very very relevant for now but I'm sure they will be in the future as well so you know, some of the stuff that we've got is 10 years old, but it's still in, in really good condition, still doing exactly what it was doing 10 years ago. And um, it's it's an easy sell. Just on measuring your pictures and monitoring your pictures, do you do that all in-house? Do you use an agronomist? Uh, most of the major stadiums in the UK use use uh, an independent agronomist or an outside agronomist. Is that the case in uh, Eden Park? Uh, it's a combination. We do um, a bit of testing in-house so you know moisture monitors and um, things like that but a lot of the other stuff like organic matter sampling hydraulic conductivity uh, 
contamination severity and things like that, we get um, an independent to come in and do that. And we do that sort of at least annually just so that we can start to create a, a, a data set that we can then adjust uh, management sort of procedures, you know, whether it's more sand top dressing, whether it's more holotone coring or, or less, um, depending on what the sort of curve we're seeing is. And so those things are really helpful to, to justify things uh, like um, capital expenditure as well. So, you know, it's really worthwhile doing that. The word investment was mentioned. What's the best investment you've made, Blair? The best investment's probably not machinery or anything like that. The best investment is creating a group of people with the same sort of mindset that that I have, because then your job isn't actually as hard as other people maybe make make it sound. Because if you have everyone on the same wavelength and things like that, that it's really powerful tool is is people and their minds and their attitude. So. You know, in terms of the equipment, it's nice, but the, the people are nicer, you know, to have. Well, that, that's, a, that's a really great attitude to have. And I think, the, you know, always, in my opinion, the, the people are the best asset you can have. And if you're investing yeah. in them and developing them, that's great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and showing them pathways and, and providing a, a workplace that's, um, that they want to come to work, you know, so... Everyone here wants to come to work. We don't. We have a start time, but we don't have a finish time. So we finish when the work's done, and no one has ever complained about that. And so you know, our hours are very varied <laughs> day by day. But there is there is no expectation to be off site by a certain time. You know, if there are tasks due to weather or schedule or anything like that that need to be done, there's no questions asked about staying until they're done. And so, yeah, we, we don't actually have a finish time. You know, that's, and that's, great. That, that's great for those people to be able to contribute like that. That must be great when it comes to the challenges that you have. And one of the challenges that you must have is the renovation periods or uh, tight schedules. Uh, yeah. How do you deal with those? Well, that, that comes back to that having the equipment and flexibility of being able to get things done. So, um, we can, you know, turn around renovations within sort of three days by hollow time coring, um, harvesting, sand top dressing, reseeding, leveling, um, and then a, a lot of sort of spray or chemical applications during those processes. And, you know, if the weather plays its part, we can get them done in three days and then the field back up and running and um, within use within two weeks. So sometimes we only have 14 days from our last event and that's our renovation window so we get say 12 days post the renovation before we have another event um, and so you know those are pretty sketchy if the weather's uh, not so helpful yeah so just out of curiosity what are the temperatures during that period during that period so we try and do two of those renovations in our our springtime so that would be post our sort of rugby competition which finishes in late October. So those temperatures, soil temperatures might be around about 16, 17 degrees. Air temperature is probably around um, 18 or 19. So it's a good time to grow grass. And then if we can, we'll try and get two of them done. So one early November and then one, say, mid-December, if we can. And then we'll go through and play our sort of um, cricket codes and early rugby program. And then when we get a break in the super rugby program, when they go to South Africa, usually we try and get another one done in sort of mid to late autumn, depending on their exact schedule. And that's cooling down, um, uh, but it's still a good, good time to grow grass. So we do them at, at those periods. Those long hours, Blair, are they, they having an impact on your and your team's family lives and are there kind of occasions when you have to work on holidays etc we pretty much work most holidays <laughs> um, because you know a lot of the sport is played on the weekends um, so this upcoming Monday is a equivalent bank holiday it's our Queen's birthday weekend but we have the Blues which is super rugby team playing the Lions on Wednesday so it'll be everyone in on Monday it's essentially two days out from a game day um, throughout summer we're working constantly on, on stat holidays um, 
and you do have to have people at home that that get it and understand it because if you're getting pressure at home it's awkward to deliver at work as well so all of the people here have people at home that that understand it and get it and we did have one one employee a couple of years ago and his he was new to our environment and his partner came in and said people in jail have more free time than you guys so sort of kind of put it in perspective yeah you you obviously play all year round and uh that brings some challenges but how do you deal with the microclimate what equipment do you have to counteract that do you have uh, lighting systems do you have fan systems yeah so the the stadium has a um definitely has those microclimates we have at right at the moment we're sort of heading in towards our shortest day and so half the field is covered in shade from one of the roof lines of a of the our north stand and so we meddled a little bit with lighting rigs on that area probably six or seven years ago but we just didn't find that we were able to move them frequently enough to cover the area and to go to a full sort of say SGL type um, system was we're probably not quite at that level for the amount of time that we have the shade issues um, and so it probably just didn't stack up numbers wise so we counter that by keeping out out of that area we have a lot less growth on that side of the field during the winter so we don't have the same necessity to be in there um, counter it with you know, probably double the amount of fungicides, put a leaf spot in that area, just with the leaf wetness constant. I mean, if you look out there now, it's fully fog. So the whole field is, <laughs> is essentially wet. Um, and so we're just sort of trying to keep up fungicides, um, lower the traffic in those areas and, and manage it a little bit like that, rather than sort of managing the whole field as one and then wondering why half the field performs a lot differently. So we sort of manage areas differently yeah, and that's the best way of doing it. I think one of the issues that's started to become um, a talking point amongst the, the British turf care industry is the mental health of groundsmen and greenkeepers. Is that something that is, you know, an issue over in, in there in New Zealand? Yes, it, it definitely is um, in some work environments, I think. You know, and so it just depends on how well the individuals are supported, I guess, by their employers. Um, here, it's it's very good, but at other venues, I think it needs to be improved and some of the, the people aren't supported um, as well as they could be. And But I think you also have to be proactive as well in, in um, managing it and sort of, you know, it's no longer sort of acceptable i guess to just sort of stay quiet about things if things aren't right just say something speak up because there are heaps of people that you know want to help and that they'll support through i mean an employer doesn't want to be um on the end of someone that's overly stressed and therefore not performing as, as they could either so you know it's in everyone's best interest to, to just say something if you're you're not feeling 100 percent or not feeling that you're delivering what you know you can do because of sort of pressures that have been put on or, or you're feeling, just just say something because someone someone will help. Yeah, I think what's what it's been a culmination of is that the uh, the stresses and, and and the pressure has always been there for the people maintaining these pitches. It's just that the sports are now getting that much bigger and that much more money involved. Correct is that the pressure actually is coming from different directions, the directions that never come before. So actually it's even heaped on the, the groundsmen or people preparing pitches even more. So I think that's one thing that the IOG are looking at uh, about producing courses to actually help groundsmen with that at all levels as well. It's going down to lower levels, not just the elite levels. So uh, yeah, it's, it's something that's coming and it's coming with the money and the money that sport attracts these days as well. So uh, I can I can understand that and empathise with any any groundsman that's uh, in that situation. Yeah, I remember them saying with the England, uh, the India-New Zealand test match, they said, well, there's 12,000 people in the stadium here. There's more people watching this on TV than there were for the Rugby World Cup final. There's more than a billion people in India watching this test match. So you yeah. sort of, you're all comfortable, and then all of a sudden someone says that, you go, oh, well, Jesus, yeah. what a few people. Oh, having, 
having having been in the position of producing test matches at Eddingway, and that first hour, isn't it, as a groundsman, yeah. when you prepared your pitch, and you're just watching every ball for every little bit of deviation, every little how the bounce is going through. You you actually live and breathe. It's almost bowling and facing that that first five ten overs. After that, you tend to relax yeah. a little bit more. But the first hour on a morning of a test match international in front of the TV cameras is yeah. it's can't describe it to be fair. Intense. Yeah. Intense. Yes. One of the things I've read about you and your philosophy, Blair, is that you don't want to tailor pitches. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I don't want the pitch to be the reason for the result. You know, these guys are all really highly skilled individuals that the cream will come to the, the top when you provide a, a pretty fair surface. And, and um, while I don't mind uh, having attributes within a pitch that might favour, you know, a particular home team, it certainly can't be out of balance um, and it needs to to be uh, offer things for both batsmen and bowlers but both teams as well so yeah we, we're sort of certainly we don't go down the road of sort of um, tailoring pitches dramatically for for one team or another but we're definitely I enjoy seeing the best cricketers do well. Another thing that I think we've, we've turned up in our research and, and correct me if I'm wrong here is um, Neat freak would be a, a little bit of an overstatement, but I think you like straight lines. Is that fair enough? Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it's OCD or not. I like, I like symmetry. I like straight lines. I like um, even the shed. I like things parked, you know, parallel to each other. The guys hate it, but they, you know, it's just something in my head that yeah, like. I like things to be the best they can be, and so, like I said, I, I don't care how long it takes, or I don't mind how many times you have to repeat something but we'll, we'll get it right have you been aware over there of, of some of the the patterns that have been mowed into pitches in the in the premier league in particular john ledwidge at uh, leicester city's got become quite uh, adept at that and got a name for himself yeah outstanding work um we used to pride ourselves on sort of being reasonably original here as well but now all of the codes have sort of fallen into line with these sort of standardised um, patterns to sort of produce a standardised look for their competition throughout the, through any venue. So cricket's the same, rugby's the same, and so all of that sort of um, originality is is gone. And I understand why. There's commercial reasons why they do it for their logo presentation and things like that. But you know, there was a period of the sort of uh, golden age of patterns and things like that, which was which was fantastic. Interesting from uh, my perspective is that uh, what groundsman do you follow in Europe and more importantly in the UK? And where do you get the uh, look for innovation? It, just interesting from my from my point of view. So in terms of um, the grounds that I sort of follow, I follow every single ground. I, I, I really watch sport for the for the sport. I, I'm looking at the surfaces that they play on. I'm looking at cricket pitches. I'm looking at the condition of um, football fields, rugby league fields, whether it be from... We get a lot of sport out of Australia and um, we do get a lot of sport out of Europe. I, I don't know many of the individual names from the European sort of codes that we get to see but I do um, have interaction with a lot of the Australian ones um, we have had regular meetings previously with Cricket World Cup from all of the, the stadium curators or turf managers delivering Cricket World Cup so we're sort of reasonably familiar and I do have um, exchanges and things with those guys as well where I've been to stadiums for pink ball test matches and um, NRL grand finals and um things like that, just sort of trying to see how they deliver those types of uh, events under the sort of maybe a little bit different circumstances with uh, traffic and um, scheduling and um, even volume of people on the field outside of the game. So, you know, talking uh, ceremonies, halftime entertainment, just sort of learning um, how to best manage those particular points, you know. So in terms of the game and the field, we're, we're right up there, but, you know, some of those other experiences that the field is likely to receive you know it's always worth learning flooring techniques um 
how much traffic you can get um, on the field without sort of compromising the surface and things like that. So those things are all worth, worth learning about. One of the things we found out in research is that you, you don't particularly like paint on your grass, but possibly not for the reasons that, you know, some people might suspect. Yeah, yeah, I've been a big um, pusher for the virtual technology. I'm sort of kind of loathed with the, the painting now, and I, I kind of think that it's um, of a bygone era. The, the paint, for me, it, it doesn't have a toxicity to the, the grass itself, but it's just so uh, sort of bad, I guess, for want of a better word, for the profile. Um, you know, so when we have that paint leaching into the sand profile, it, it really just does sort of slow down the water movement through those pore spaces within the sand. And um, over time, I mean, we've been using painted logos in the same areas of the field for, you know, 20 years now. And um, there really is a difference in performance in those uh, logo areas of the field. And they really need intense management, particularly in the winter. Um, where that infiltration rate has just slowed so so much. And have the, the virtual logos become commonplace over there in, uh, in New Zealand? They've become commonplace in some of the codes that New Zealand teams play in, but not commonplace in New Zealand. So while we have a, a team playing in the Australian National Rugby League competition where virtual logos are, are standard practice, they're not yet standard practice in Super Rugby in New Zealand, albeit that in um, South Africa they are, and in Australia they are. So we're probably lagging a little bit behind in terms of that technology here in this country, but you know there is quite a bit of pressure from the stadiums onto the venue hires to, to move to this technology. And they, they are um, assuring venues that they are going to move to that technology. It's just a timing thing, I think. Is there anywhere in particular in terms of new technology and, and the science of uh, the craft that you look to? Um, a lot of online stuff, um, just because New Zealand's quite isolated in regard to actually having the technology on the ground. Like I said, we've, we've probably definitely got a bit of a lag time compared to whether it be United States, Australia or, or Europe. So a lot of the stuff is online. Um, and so therefore I can sort of look at videos and, and uh, read a lot of comments about it. But in terms of um, experiencing it firsthand, I guess I'm usually fifth in line to sort of uh, try anything out. Sometimes not the worst thing, but you know, I think technology is a, um, is a part of this uh, sort of job now that we need to start to embrace a little bit more. And I think it can help us out rather than sort of be be over our heads or anything like that. Everyone's smart enough to pick up on these things. If our kids can work out iPads and online gaming and everything like that, then I'm sure we can work out um, weather stations, um, uh, you know, profile monitoring and, and things like that um, easily enough. And it's only going to help us out rather than um, hinder us. And, you know, the people coming through in our industry are really familiar with technology and would probably start to ask questions as to why we're not utilising these types of things as well. So I think it's just... Um, might be awkward to start with, but I think it's it's well worth getting our head around. Blair, if we can take a look now at the people and the individuals that have helped you, you know, develop your style, your philosophy, and had the greatest influence on you as a, a groundsman, who would they be? Okay, so prior to um, me coming into, say, Eden Park here, I had the luxury of working for the New Zealand Sports Turf Institute, and so I got to visit a lot of venues and um, both here in New Zealand and overseas. So I got to see some really top end people in terms of the way that they um, manage people, manage turf and things like that. And so you kind of aspire to, to some of them um, in terms of what they deliver. And, you know, people that I've sort of looked towards to, to replicate some of their um, outcomes, I guess, of people like Mark Perham, who was my uh, predecessor here at Eden Park. You know, there was a lot of things going on at the stadium with rebuilds and um, reshaping of management and everything like that. But the way that the field was always delivered was always outstanding. And so it, it changed every single time. And so to be able to be adaptable and change the way that you produce something, but still deliver that same outcome, was a skill that I learned from Mark because um, 
we were just in, a, in a, an environment where we didn't have um, sort of a sound base to be able to replicate every year with just such a rebuild going on here at the stadium. So adaptability and always having a, um, a mentality that no, no, no matter what, the, the surface is going to be ready, it's going to be there. Um, we're just going to have to change the way we do it every time. So we still have to adapt that sort of philosophy now. And without him sort of inadvertently showing us how to do that, I don't know, you know, how confident you'd be to be able to come into some of the situations that we face. But now I'm, I'm fairly confident that we can deliver anything with any sort of um, things going on in the sideline, I guess. And if you, you had one piece of advice that somebody gave you down the years, uh, what would you pick out as the most important piece of advice you've ever got? Uh, be confident in, in your own ability uh, and, and back yourself. You, you'd be surprised what you can do, even if you don't think you can do it. You, you would be really surprised. And sometimes you feel uh, awkward or out of your depth, but you still have confidence in yourself because somewhere from somewhere you're going to get what you need to do. And and sometimes, you know, I get daunted a little bit by scheduling or by uh, events and things like that, but sometimes you have to just back away a little bit and, and, and think about, you know, just break it down into real basic things and, and it can be done. And But you do need those people around you to help you because I used to think you could do it on your own, but there's, there's just no way you can. So you need you need people that you're confident in and things like that and just have confidence in yourself. Who gave you that advice? Um, probably a little bit of self-developed after um, being having initially probably a lack of confidence, you know, and in terms of just, just working it out one day, you know, you said you can actually do it and... You've been given an opportunity. Other people back you. That's why you're here. Um, so, so just stand up and, and and be confident. And then when you when you like that, it's not arrogance or anything like that. It's just confidence. And yeah. and other people will feed off that as well. They want people around them to be confident. They don't want to be surrounded by sort of a a wishy washy. Oh my God, what are we going to do here? Scenario. So, think it out. Be confident, and other people will will follow and help you deliver. We've spoken a lot about your career so far. Um, Let's talk about the future a little bit now and, and your aspirations. First amongst those is when you, you leave Eden Park, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? Um, I guess I, I'm probably a guy that blends into the background a little bit, so I don't need a photo on the wall or anything like that, but I just want to be remembered you know, as being part of something that was a really high quality and successful um, environment for for other people to grow in and, and utilise some of the attributes that we've sort of shown and developed here. And also, you know, some of the events are uh, outstanding and, and people remember them for the events themselves rather than the turf surfaces. But um, even if I can just sort of reflect internally on those turf surfaces, and sometimes I'm not too worried about the scores or results, but I know that they were, they were really high quality and that's sort of enough for me.